Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you and great to be back. A couple of you have asked for me to give a bird's eye quick view of my uh, trip. I just did a filming trip with uh, my cameraman to do some videos over in Israel and also went to Malta. And it was, uh, it was wet. Uh, Israel had tons of rain, which is sort of great for them, but it's bad for us when trying to film. And it's ironic because Israel had its driest winter on record until my plane lands. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, I don't know, if I could look at it in the sense that I brought blessing to, to the, but anyway. But it was a blessing. We, we filmed uh, in Jerusalem, had some places there in Jerusalem, and southwest of Jerusalem uh, at uh, one of the Levitical cities called Libna. Uh, we went to Malta, and uh, no snakes. I didn't see any snakes at Malta. Remember, Paul was bitten by a snake at Malta, for those of you who didn't laugh. <clears throat> that, that's why it was you know, supposed to be funny. No snakes at Malta that, I, that we could find. But a beautiful, beautiful, uh, beautiful time there. So it was a blessing overall. It's good to be back. Um, it's gone for seven days, Sunday to Sunday. Uh, the last uh, day, though, I was in Istanbul when that big earthquake hit. And, uh, but that's sort of like saying I was in Texas when California got an earthquake. It was it's so far removed that it, uh, we knew nothing about it until we flipped the news on. So, but I have been to those places in eastern Turkey anyway, where uh, the earthquake hit, um, Orfa, um, Haran, uh, Antakya, these places that have such biblical significance for us in the scriptures, uh, of course, are the places that was like the epicenter for these uh, earthquakes. So I, I definitely feel for those people. I've been there, I've seen them, and uh, to know the biblical connections as well makes it all that more special. Well, we're going to be back in the book of Leviticus today, and so if you would turn to Leviticus chapter 11. Leviticus chapter 11. The Washington Post was asked to, uh, asked its readers to take any word in the English dictionary and to change it, to alter it, to, to, to change the word by taking one letter out or by exchanging one letter in the word and creating a new word, and then, of course, giving it a new definition. Well, there's all these entries, but I've selected my five favorites. Uh, for example, instead of the word inoculate, they added a T, an, a, an extra T, and it's inoculate. And here's the definition. Inoculate means to take coffee intravenously while you are running late. It's a good word. Here's another one. Instead of the Doppler effect, you have the Doppler effect. This is the tendency of stupid ideas to seem smarter as they come at you rapidly. Instead of the ozone layer, you have the bozone layer. This is the substance surrounding some of us that stops wisdom from penetrating. This is a good one. Instead of intoxication, we have intoxication coming up. This is the euphoria at getting a tax refund, which lasts until you realize it was your money to start with. <laughs> and my all-time favorite, this one is so good. Instead of reincarnation, it's reincarnation. <laughs> this is when you die and come back to life as a hillbilly. 
Reincarnation. Well, when we look at some of the books of the Bible and some of the laws of the Bible, they seem to lie somewhere in between the bozone layer and intoxication. It's just like, it doesn't make sense to us. Leviticus is a great example. We just don't get it. Some of these laws seem to, seem to be so irrelevant to us. And yet, here's the irony. When you go to Israel, it seems like sometimes some of these laws are still in effect, like what we're going to look at today in Leviticus 11 with regard to the kosher laws, the kosher laws of eating. But the irony is that um, all really kosher means today in Israel is that you don't mix milk and meat. That's kind of it. You get that rule down, you got it all, which is not anywhere listed here in the Bible. So it's sort of interesting. Actually, the verse that they get that from is in Exodus. Uh, if you're interested in the actual reference, is Exodus 34, 26. And it's that reference that says, don't boil a goat in its mother's milk. That means don't mix milk and meat, right? Well, it's interesting that this verse has been translated or, or interpreted that way, don't mix milk and meat. Um, you know, Abraham actually did that. Abraham mixed milk and meat. And an extra donut for anybody that can tell me where that happened. Remember when it happened? When he was visited by the angel. Joseph gets a donut. <laughs> you remember when the angel of the Lord came to, came to Abraham and he scrambled to put together a meal, and he served him meat and curds. Milk and meat, Abraham did it. So anyway, so interesting. When I was in uh, Jerusalem two weeks ago, actually, I walked by a pizza parlor, and it said kosher pizza. <laughs> well, how do you have pizza without milk and meat? So I walked in to see how in the world you do it. Well, it's just a cheese pizza. Just a cheese pizza. You could put um, tomatoes on it and mushrooms and everything, but just not meat. But you walk around the corner and it says non-kosher pizza. And so that's the one that we, uh, we went inside. <laughs> but Leviticus 11. Uh, last time we were in Leviticus, we looked at chapter 10 with the sin of Nadab and Abihu, these two sons, these priests, these sons of Aaron that brought strange fire or foreign fire into the temple or into the tabernacle. And that basically means they'd let the fire go out uh, at the altar they, and they brought in fire of their own that was strange or foreign. And of course, uh, they were judged by God for that. And uh, the application there is that God said, uh, I will be treated as holy there in uh, verse 10. By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. So we turn the page to Leviticus 11, and we see a similar principle of God's holiness, but now it is lived out among the common people regarding food, regarding uh, these laws of eating. So let's look at uh, Leviticus 11. 11. We'll start right in verse 1. We'll read this, and then we'll talk about how in the world this can apply to us. The Lord spoke again to Moses and to Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, These are the creatures which you may eat from, all the animals that are on the earth. Whatever divides a hoof, thus making split hoofs, and chews the cud among the animals, that you may eat. 
Nevertheless, you are not to eat of these among those which chew the cud or among those which divide the hoof, the camel. For though it chews cud, it does not divide the hoof. It is unclean to you. Likewise, the shafan, the shafan is like a little rock badger or a coney. Likewise, the shafan, though it chews the cud, it does not divide the hoof. It is unclean to you. The rabbit also, for though it chews the cud, it does not divide the hoof. It is unclean to you. And the pig, though it divides the hoof, thus making a split hoof, it does not chew the cud. It is unclean to you. You shall not eat of their flesh nor touch their carcasses. They are unclean to you. Isn't that an interesting passage? How in the world do we apply that? I guess we could apply it by not eating these things, but is that really what God's after? What is this teaching? What is God using food to teach over and over? I don't know, I've read some really creative interpretations of this, and maybe you've even seen it, like in some of the Christian bookstores, where you know, you've got uh, the diet that is God's diet, and you, you eat this food, and this is God's God's diet for you, and you can, you'll be blessed by God if you eat this. And like the Daniel diet, you know, we've got a, the Daniel diet where you just have vegetables. It's funny, though, you never see like the John the Baptist diet. <laughs> hey, honey, pass the locusts. And you never see the Jesus diet where you eat nothing. What did, why are these animals chosen? Well, notice the repeated phrase, unclean to you. These dietary commands basically represent a microcosm of the, of the life of a Hebrew. Think about it this way. The unclean animals represented unclean nations. Why? Because these nations eat these animals. The clean animals represented the Hebrew nation. Why? because the Jews or the Hebrews ate the clean animals. The sacrificial animals represented the priests. Why? Because the priests ate the sacrificial animals. Each of these sections of animals represented a people group. Unclean animals represented Gentiles, clean animals represented Hebrews or the nation Israel, and the sacrificial animals represented the priests. Foods were intended to separate God's people from the Gentiles. Interesting, foods still do this today. Uh, some years ago, I went to China for Insight for Living as we were looking at uh, uh, letting the broadcast reach out into the, the Chinese airwaves. And I walked on the street. For, first of all, it was great being in China because for a week, I was the tallest man in the country. <laughs> and that like never happens anywhere else. So that was fantastic. But also, you're walking down the streets of, I don't know if it was Shanghai or uh, Beijing, wherever we were. We're walking down these streets to kind of get a sense of the culture. And I started to look at some of the things that they were selling you to eat, like on the street. And there's these buckets of live eels. I mean, you could like pick one, you know, and just kind of let it wiggle down. Now, why would you want to swallow something that is trying to crawl back up? How does that, how, does that, how do you, how, how do you, how does that work? Maybe they kill them first, I don't know. But anybody want to go eat a live eel or just an eel at all? 
That's not something that we in our culture have acquired, and yet in China that is, that is the norm. Uh, one time I was doing an overseas mission uh, trip in Russia, and a pastor's wife invited us to their home. Our pastor and his wife invited us to their home. She had made this very gracious meal, very simple meal, just this wonderful bread, you know, this hot steaming bread, and, uh, you know, a big, big thing of ice water. And then there was this other dish that was there on the table, and it, it was, I didn't recognize it. It was, uh, it was purple, and uh, it looked, kind of looked like beets. Come to find out, it was called bear. What was it called? Bear in a fur coat. I think was the was the English translation of it. I probably mean something far better in Russian. But it's uh, it's beets. It's salmon. I think it's salmon. Uh, let's see. I wrote it down. I yeah, know it's meat. Oh, it's herring. It's herring mixed with mayonnaise and beets, just kind of slathered over the top. And then you just serve it. Well. I took one bite of this, and I kid you not, my body rejected it. I didn't like throw up right there on the table, but I mean, it was coming back up worse than a Chinese eel. It was on its way back. And if it hadn't been for that huge glass of water, and I just choked it down. And then you kind of do what we did as kids. You kind of spread it around on your plate and make it look like you've had some. And then I went to town on the bread. And when we were done, I said, thank you very much for the meal. <laughs> and the pastor's wife said, why? You didn't eat anything. <laughs> Foods separate us. In Russia, that is a delicacy, which is why she served it to us. From her perspective, it was being extremely gracious. And most people in that country would have appreciated it. I didn't appreciate it because I don't have an acquired taste for gross-tasting mayonnaise herring. But they do. And I also know that, that Russians have a very interesting, I won't go on and on about the different foods, but one more is definitely worth mentioning. They take a hog's head and they make a soup out of it. Then they, they let it set and then they stick it in the refrigerator and let it cool. Dude, it's a nice little gel and you pull it out, and you eat it cold with a spoon. Welcome to Russia. It's not too endearing to have someone get sick at your meal that you've prepared for them. It is, it's going to be very hard to have a close relationship with a person like that. We're picky about what we eat. Some of us are really picky about what we eat. Really picky. If you don't like Italian food, you're not going to go to an Italian restaurant. And this was God's point. It wasn't, we don't want you around Italians. It's, we don't want you around Italian gods. So God would use food and acquired taste to keep you separate from the Gentiles and the Gentile gods. It wasn't about food, per se. It was ultimately about being separate and being holy to the Lord. This is the whole point. God used acquired taste to assist in godly living. Now, we're not going to read the details of the rest of the chapter because it's really more of the same. If you just kind of glance down through the chapter with me, you can see we just read verses 1 through 8 about these land animals 
that can and can't be eaten, but verses 9 through 43 speak of water animals, flying animals, dead animals, creeping or swarming animals, and then there is this summary in verse 44, which is what we'll look at, verse 44, which contains really the timeless truth of the whole chapter. Here's why you would be required to not eat or to eat these particular foods. Verse 44, God says, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. And you shall not make yourself unclean with any of the swarming things that swarm on the earth, for I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. God gives us three reasons, or gave them three reasons, that they applied in their context, that we can take those same three reasons and apply in our context. And we'll look at those three principles here in just a minute. But we just read them there in verse 44 and 43. Consecrate yourself. Consecrate yourself. What does that mean? What does it mean to consecrate yourself? Have you ever walked out of a movie? I mean, more and more these days, movies are worth walking out of. I tell you, I, I was at a movie or went to a movie some time ago, and just the previews of the, the other movies almost had me leave. It was, it was I, I don't know, it was just, I don't know, I felt unclean, as it were, to sit there. But I remember one time Kathy and I were sitting in this movie, and it was about five, ten minutes in, and I just turned to her and said, do you mind if we leave? She said, no. And so we got up and left. I remember also reading about the uh, pro-life activist, the Emmy-winning actress Patricia Heaton. She was asked why she walked out in the middle of the American Music Awards one year, and she said, quote, what was passing for humor basically ranged from stupid to vulgar, and I just thought, I'm not going to be part of this, and she left. Consecrate yourselves, God says. What does that mean? The Hebrew word for consecrate, basically it's from the same words that we get here as be holy. It means be separate from what is not pure. Be separate from all that is evil. Why? He told them, you shall not make yourselves unclean. In other words, when we allow ourselves to be exposed, repeatedly exposed, to evil, it becomes a magnet to our fallen hearts. We want to go that direction. It entices us to be evil ourselves and not to be clean, as, as it were. Now, Leviticus has talked a lot about being unclean. What does unclean mean? It doesn't mean that, you know, you need to go take a shower. It's not that kind of unclean. It doesn't mean physically dirty. And it doesn't mean sinful. I think this is also a, a common misconception with regard to unclean. What does unclean mean? An unclean state or to have unclean status doesn't relate to sin. For example, here are some examples of, giving, of, uh, of being unclean. Giving birth, having a skin disease, burying a dead relative. These have nothing to do with sin. And yet they... they they classify a person as being unclean. 
To be unclean is basically to be in a non-normal state, if you think of it that way, as God defines normalness, to be in a non-normal state. In other words, only a flawless animal could be sacrificed. Only a physically flawless priest could serve. Only people in normal conditions could worship. Only normal clothing could be worn. Only normal houses could be lived in. And if any of these essentials were not normal, as God defines normalness, they were classified as unclean, and they had to be purified, or in other words, brought back into a normal state before you could participate again. That's all unclean means. It just means that it's in a status that is not fitting to come into God's presence. Think about Jesus for a second. Let me give you a, a few examples. Think about Jesus. When Jesus first started his ministry, he had one primary message. And here's a hint. It was the same message John the Baptist had. What was that message? Repent. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Exactly. Jesus' message was the kingdom. The kingdom is right here. I, I mean, it's right at the door. It is at hand. And in order to enter the kingdom, you need to repent. So you've got the king himself saying the kingdom is, is right here. If you repent, you get to go into the kingdom. And in in a preview sense of what he will do for all who enter the kingdom, Jesus went around taking people who were in a non-normal state and trans transforming them into a normal state. The blind could now see. The heal the, those who were lame could now walk. The, when Christ healed people during his earthly ministry, it was basically a preview of what he will do for everybody who enters his kingdom. Those who were unclean, he cleansed. Those who were sick got better. And, by the way, just as Christ's resurrection gave a preview of all of our resurrections to come, he is the firstborn from the dead, so Christ's physical healing gave a preview of what he will do for all of us physically. That we, we will not enter his kingdom with any non-normalness to us, with anything out of whack. It's all going to be good. And won't that be wonderful? That Christ doesn't just take care of us spiritually, but he takes care of us physically. And Leviticus and its persnicketiness about why you can't come into the tabernacle if you're in an unclean state is not, to, is not for God to say, I exclude you, but it's for God to say, this is an illustration to you how important it is that you be right in order to come into my presence. And because you can't be in and of yourself, I will help make you right. I will do it for you. I will bring you back into that state of normalness. Of course, as Christians, we have the confidence that our physical impurities and our non-normal conditions needn't exclude us from fellowship with God because through Jesus' death and resurrection, God's made a way for us to be clean. Why are we to be holy? Well, I mentioned there were three principles here in verse 44. Look at those. Look at that verse again, and let's look at these three principles. Why be holy? Why live a life of holiness? And in our day and age, good grief, we need, to, we need to hear these. We need to reiterate these because we're never going to hear it on television. We're hardly, and unfortunately, we hardly ever hear it among our, in our churches. 
Because we need to know not just to be good, but why? Why should I be good? Verse 44 tells us, first of all, it says, I am the Lord your God. All right, well, there's reason number one. He's God, and he is our God. Second, we're told, consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. Not only is he our God, but he is our standard. He is holy. Therefore, we are to be holy. And then finally, how's this for motivation? Verse 45, I am the Lord your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. He redeemed them. He saved them from a life of slavery. Now, take those principles, lift them from Leviticus, drop them down into your lap right now, and they're all still true. He is our God. He is holy. He has redeemed us. These are wonderful motivations for us to live a life of holiness. Now, there are three places in the New Testament that I'd like us to look at that give a big amen to this. Three places. First is 1 Peter 1. So you can leave Leviticus now, and we will now take those timeless truths and make them very applicable to us. 1 Peter chapter 1. I heard about a really interesting accountability relationship between a couple of men at a local church. This one guy, I don't remember what his name is, but he, he uh, really struggled with profanity. I mean, anything had happened and he'd just let it rip. He'd just start cussing. And if you came from a background where this was your habit, then you can understand the struggle of giving up the habit. It's just sort of a knee-jerk reaction. And if you're not around it, boy, it really sticks out like a sore thumb. I was trying to remember where I was. I guess I was in an airport restroom. You hear a lot of cussing in airport restrooms. <laughs> At least I do. I walked in there, and there were these two guys who had never met before. And as they met with one another, they very quickly began to realize, oh, we're kind of on the same terms with the same vocabulary. And they just let it rip right there in the men's room which is strange because men usually don't talk in the men's room. Now, ladies, I know you probably don't know that, but we don't. If you go in the men's restroom, it's like one of the most quiet places on the planet. We just don't talk. I mean, what's there to talk about? You're in, the, you're in there to use a the restroom. I asked my wife, I say, do women talk in the, in the women's restroom? She says, oh, yes. They even have couches in there, places to sit down. Said, really? I don't get it. But anyway, these two guys, they were cussing. And so anyway, back to my accountability story. Boy, I chased that rabbit down a hole, didn't I? So these two guys had this accountability relationship. One guy had a problem with cussing. And the other, his accountability partner says, look, here's the way we'll work this. Every time you cuss, you owe me or you owe the church $5. Keep a list. Every time you cuss, you pay $5 in the offering plate. Well, the first week cost him a hundred bucks. You know, and although the following weeks improved quite a bit, he wasn't having the, excess, the success that he was hoping that this would have. And so his accountability partner told him, all right, look, the deal for next week changes. You don't have to pay anything anymore, but it's still going to cost you, and I won't tell you until next week how it's going to work out. So next week comes, and 
his accountability partner basically gives him, this is a true story, I'm not just making this up for the sake of a great illustration, <laughs> though it would be worthy, gives him a blank check, his own blank check, and says, fill in the amount. In other words, every time you cuss, I pay for it. Whoa. That's a totally different motivation, isn't it? Sometimes you think it's worth five bucks to say this. But if I, but if, but if I know that I, Harry's got to pay every time I cuss, then that's different. And it really made a difference in this guy, in this guy's life, to where eventually it dwindled down to nothing. Think about that with relationship to Christ. If you could pay for your sin, I mean, if you could drag an animal up and say, you know, hey, you know, I, I really blew it this week uh, with my sin, but hey, here's a goat, done. But what if it's Christ? Christ died for our sins. Now it's totally different motivation. He has redeemed us. God redeemed them. And so now the motivation is to live a life of holiness. 1 Peter 1, look down at verse 14. 1 Peter 1, 14. Peter writes this, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, and now Peter quotes from Leviticus 11, You shall be holy, for I am holy. If you address as Father the one who conducts, who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with, a perish with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So Peter quotes Leviticus 11, there in verse 16, you shall be holy for I am holy. Remember in Leviticus 11 when we read that, the context of the reason that God said you should be holy is because I'm your God, I'm holy, and be, what was the third one? Because I have redeemed you. The Exodus. Peter uses the same thing here. He says, you shall be holy. And he says, verse 19, you were redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished. That's a Passover lamb. So Peter also is saying, hey, remember the context of Leviticus 11? They were redeemed with, by the blood of the Passover lamb. You are too. But it's not a, a, a lamb in, in the physical sense like they were, but this is the spotless blood of Jesus Christ, a lamb unblemished. He is our God, he is holy, and he has redeemed us. Um, whenever I go to Greece, it's always shocking to go to the, the stores there and to see, um, I mean, I don't like buy cigarettes, but you can't like not notice the stacks of cigarettes that are there. Because in Greece, somebody passed a law that on cigarette packages, they show you what cigarettes do to a lung. I'm, I kid you not. If you look at a pack of cigarettes in Greece, it shows like the inside of this lung that's been torn open that, that has all this you know, cancer and black stuff running out of it when you smoke cigarettes. How's that for marketing? Why in the world 
would you buy cigarettes? Sure, I'll, I'll take two of those. <laughs> Somebody passed a law. It's like, yeah, if you want to smoke, that's fine, but this is, what, this is what it does to you. It reminds me of when I was a kid. I'll never forget when I was, I think it was about the eighth grade, our school tried to scare us into not using, to not doing drugs. And they showed us films, you know, films about people you know, these kids at a party where students used drugs and then they passed out and then they were rushed to the hospital where somebody calls the parents and the mom and dad are crying. And the lesson, basically the moral lesson of it all is don't do drugs because they'll stick needles in your veins at the hospital and it'll make your parents cry. <laughs> when I took driver's ed, they showed us these movies of, of cars that got hit by trains and I mean, just this horrible stuff was like to scare you to death and to not sinning, to not breaking the law. And we've all known people that have done that, and we all know that, and yet we still smoke. We still break the law. We still do the things that we shouldn't do, even though we know the consequences that are going to follow. Why is that? Because knowing facts and having convictions are different things. And we need continual exposure to the truth of God's word to deepen our commitment to be holy because he is holy. Let me just take a little quick sidebar and tell you that if you have, and I know that to one degree or another, we've all done it. We've all sinned. I know we've all sinned, but... You know, some of us have sinned in such a way that it's kind of tough to move on, kind of tough to, to not look back with terrible regret. The hard part of moving on past failure, any failure, whether it's cussing or cheating or lusting or lying, you can just pick, pick the one that fits your list, is there's no way to unfail. Once it's done, it's done. And it... And, and when it sinks in, you realize the permanence of our stupid choice can get so burned in our brains that we come to see our failure as a defining moment for us. A moment that defines us and continues to define us. And that's our problem. One act does not define us. A dozen acts, a dozen sins don't define us. A thousand dozen sins don't define us. God defines us, God and God alone. And God tells us that we have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and that all of our sins are forgiven. Even that terrible sin that you think there's no going back from. The challenge, of course, comes with feeling that definition. Um, we can know it, but not feel it. God has defined us as forgiven. But you know, this, all the sins that we committed, um, none of them had been committed when Jesus died. They were all future. And so he's died for all of them. Even that horrible sin he has died for. We are Christians who sin. We are recovering hypocrites. But God defines us as saints. Now, look if you would, turn back to Mark chapter 7. Let's look at another example of this. Mark chapter 7. Andrew Murray wrote 
The chief mark of counterfeit holiness is its lack of humility. Think about that. The chief mark of counterfeit, fake holiness is its lack of humility. Counterfeit holiness is pride. Counterfeit holiness is pride. It spends its time pointing to other people without taking the time to truly see that we, that I, am the chief of sinners, as Paul said. Mark chapter 7, uh, this is a context, if you just sort of scan up and down, uh, Mark chapter 7, especially down in verse 18 where we, where we will begin, is the context regarding foods and kosher foods, clean and unclean foods. And Jesus made a very interesting statement here starting in verse 18. Mark 7, 18. Um, and I should turn there. That's chapter 6. There's chapter 7, 18. And he said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach, and is eliminated. Thus he declared all foods clean. What a fascinating statement. Jesus says all food is clean. This is clearly a transition, a transitional statement Jesus is making from Old Covenant to the New Covenant, Old Testament to the New Testament. All foods are clean. And his point is that a food, food doesn't defile you. Food is just that which illustrates the lack of holiness in your heart. But notice also what, what the context of this right after. After he declares all foods clean, what is the next big event that occurs in verse 24 and following? Jesus goes out of Israel into a Gentile region and ministers to this Syphrophoenician woman. Well, there's a good spelling B word. This Greek woman. Let's just say it like that. <laughs> this Gentile woman. He ministers to her. And then if you look at the beginning of chapter 8, the feeding of the 4,000. This is not 4,000 Jews. This is 4,000 Gentiles. What's the point? Jesus is making a transition that all foods are clean, and then he teaches his disciples, now we're going to go to the Gentiles. Now, what did we say back in Leviticus that the unclean uh, represented? The Gentile nations. So if all foods are clean, what does that mean we can do? We can go to the Gentile nations. He was training his disciples for what it's going to be like to have ministry in the church. Now, look at Acts chapter 10. This is the third and final turn. Acts chapter 10. Peter was obviously there in Mark 7, but he didn't get the message. And now in Acts chapter 10, Peter is there once again, and Jesus repeats this message. You know this story. This is in Caesarea where the Lord appeared to a Gentile named Cornelius, told him to send to Joppa to get Peter and to give him the message to, to come and uh, share the gospel basically with Cornelius. But if you look down at verse 10, Acts 10 verse 10, that's where we'll begin reading. But he became hungry, Peter, this is Peter, he became hungry and was desiring to eat, but while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance, and he saw the sky opened up, and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it 
all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air, a voice came to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Again, a voice came to him a second time, what God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Now, while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be, behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate. So you see what the Lord is teaching Peter. Again, he's making the connection between unclean food and unclean people. And then basically Jesus tells Peter, hey, Peter, have some bacon. Peter's like, I ain't never had pig. And Jesus says, what I have cleansed no longer consider unclean. And then now it's time to go to Cornelius' house. Now it's time to go to the unclean Gentiles. In fact, we see Peter makes this connection in verse 28. Verse 28, and he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him, and yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. That's the meaning of this vision. So the irony is just as the kosher laws kept God's people apart from the nations, so the abolishment of the kosher laws now gives God's people the commission to go to the nations. Jesus' statement that all foods are clean basically represented taking the good news to the Gentiles, and that's exactly what Peter did. So, but even though Jesus put bacon back on the menu, eating still remains an important indicator of holiness even in our lives today. Uh, here's some simple examples. Think about this. With whom do we eat? And more importantly, why do we eat with people? Well, Jesus ate with sinners, and he was criticized for it, but his purpose was to draw them to God. Also, when we eat the Lord's Supper, this is a communal meal, it's often called, even though it's just this little cracker and this little bitty taste of juice, it's still considered the Lord's Supper. And when we eat the Lord's Supper together, it implies our fellowship with one another and with God. See, food, eating, has, a significant, has significance there as well, doesn't it? The scriptures tell believers not to eat with those who are under church discipline. So now, here's an example where you don't eat with other Christians who are in unrepentant sin and who are under church discipline. You don't even eat with them. You don't fellowship with them. And food has a function in that context of uh, urging them to repent. And then, of course, that, uh, that verse that tells us to be self-controlled in all things, which is very difficult uh, come Thanksgiving and Christmas. Believers are to be self-controlled in all things regarding even eating. So Paul writes, I mean, this is all throughout the Bible. Paul wrote that everything is, that is created by God is good. There's nothing that's off the menu, as it were. But the point of, of food was to separate us from the nations, and now that that ban has been lifted, there's the obligation to go to the nations, to go to the nations. Paul summarized it well when he, when he wrote this. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Do all for the glory of God. So holiness in our lives, the kosher laws, all the kosher laws were intended to do. 
was to keep us separate from this was to keep the Jews separate from the sin that would influence them. But now that those are lifted, we're still to have that same wariness of being influenced by the world, but instead to be holy because God has redeemed us. Holiness means that we make a distinction between the way we live and the way the world lives, not because we're better than them, but because our God is better. Our God is the best, and we want to live a life that honors him. Let's pray. Our Father, having a kosher life, having a kosher walk with you, if we think of it that way, has, has very little to do with simply food per se. And even these laws, as we've seen in Leviticus, um, as irrelevant as they seem to us as Christians in the New Covenant and in reading the New Testament, still have timeless truths of holiness. They reflect your character, and thus they should be reflecting ours. How easy it is, Father, as we live in our culture to take lightly the things of holiness, to take forgiveness for granted, to take grace and abuse it, as opposed to letting grace and our redemption be the motivation by which we live lives of holiness. And even in that pursuit, we fail. We, uh, we fail. In our own strength, we can't live holy lives. Um, thank you also for the grace that allows us to not be defined by our imperfect efforts, but to be defined by Christ. As we, are, as we have placed our faith in him, so we are identified with Jesus, and we are completely forgiven. And when you look at us, you see the righteousness of your son, Jesus. And Lord, we pray for any that may be here and may not have that confidence in Christ, the confidence of forgiveness that they would finally come to the end of themselves and the frustration of trying to earn and live a good life to somehow earn your favor, which can never happen. Instead, would you help them to transfer their trust from themselves to Jesus, who died to take away all their sins, and in that simple act of faith to receive the forgiveness that is theirs freely and be forgiven. Father, thanks for the privilege of reading today. Uh, thanks for Dr. Murphy for his encouragement uh, as well. We're grateful to uh, sit under such good exposition. Thank you for this text today in Leviticus that gives us practical insights, uh, whereas before it seems like a yawner. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Wayne. Good to have you back. Until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.